Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Leslie Picker in for Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the next move for the markets as we gear up for a critical week ahead. Our investment committee is standing by to help us navigate it all. Joining us now for the hour is Steph Link, Joe Terranova, Anastasia Amoroso, and Jim Labenthal. Let's get a check on the market at noon Eastern. Dow trying to hold on to its gains, currently up about 17 points. The Nasdaq holding steady, uh, up about half a percent today as yields also holding steady the 10-year around 4.3 currently. But guys, it's really busy uh, week on deck. We've got CPI, PPI, retail sales, Apple iPhone, Barclays financial event, Arm IPO. Should I go on? (laughs) I mean, we've got a lot going on. Uh, Steph, I want to turn to you first. Do you think this is a a week where we could see a lot of news that helps move the market higher? Or is it still kind of bad news is good news, good news is bad news, and no one knows what to make of all this? I think good news is always good news. (laughs) So that's just me as glass half full. Um, But I think the most important number this week is going to be the CPI number, the inflation numbers, right? Because we know the economy has been resilient, Mm -hmm. led by the consumer, led by the consumer focusing on and spending in services, which is 70% of consumption, right? Manufacturing, not great, but pockets are actually very good, like aviation, onshoring, anything tied to those two themes, that part of manufacturing is doing well. So that's led to above average growth in the economy, but above average growth in inflation. And so that's why I think the number is so important. Now, the headline, I think, is going to, people are expecting that number to go up on a year-over-year basis from last month's number, 3.6 versus 3.3. And that's because of gasoline, basically up 31% since the the lows. Um, The core number, though, should be actually lower than expected. So I know the Fed thinks and, and, and focuses on the core over the headline. But I think the market might be spooked if we get a hot, really hot uh, headline number and they kind of ignore the core for the time being. So I think you can see some volatility. And of course, Joe, these are really important prints as we look ahead to, you know, what the Fed is going to do in September. Um, How about retail sales and the state of the consumer on that side of the equation? How closely are you paying attention to that? Well, I think that's critical. And I I agree with what Stephanie is um, defining for the week. I think is bad news bad news is bad news for the market to me that seems to uh, correlate not only with CPI but for retail sales that would be the biggest challenge that we have in the marketplace if in fact retail sales exhibit that the consumer is beginning to decelerate in terms of its overall resiliency we are at a moment that I believe is critical for the consumer the moment in which the savings rate has eroded significantly, no longer can this consumer rely upon that. The cumulative excess savings rate. And then the fiscal support that the consumer has received over the last 24 months, again, that begins to fade somewhat. So now, 
It's about a consumer that has to turn somewhere else mm. if they're going to fund their spending desires. And where will they turn? They'll turn to regional banks and they'll turn to money center banks. And unfortunately, I think what they'll find in pivoting in that direction is far less receptiveness than they've been offered certainly over the last five to seven years. And that's a little bit of a challenge, I think, for consumer spending in the economy. Yeah, well, lending standards, certainly, Anastasia, have been tightened. Uh, and we've got this Barclays Financials conference this week where we should hear a lot. We've already started to hear a lot of commentary from some regional banks today. Uh, we'll hear from J.P. Morgan Chairman and CEO Jamie Dimon later in the hour uh, to get his take. But so far, the, the lending environment certainly curtailed. Yeah. You've seen some job losses across Wall Street. I mean, how does all of this play into the narrative that we're seeing increasingly priced into stocks of, hey, I think we're going to reach the soft landing. Janet Yellen said it over the weekend, Treasury Secretary. Um, you know, yeah. how, how do you kind of pull all this together? Yeah, well, we know that bank standards are, lending standards are certainly tightening. But at the same time, if I look for something else that might be good for the consumer, it's actually the fact that stocks are up and therefore the household net worth is also up. So, for example, the number that came out last week was $154 trillion in household net worth. And by the way, there's been a major pop in that, in that change in that number in the second quarter, once again, because consumers are benefiting from this current stock, stock environment. So I'm not necessarily very bearish on the consumer slowing down and therefore the bank sector, you know, just not being able to support it. I will also say that last week, the narrative for the market was ISM services are stronger, oil is spiking, maybe therefore the Fed is going to have to do more. But if you look through those numbers, first of all, ISM services is not what the Fed is going to pay attention to, not that number standalone. They're going to pay attention to what Steph was mentioning, which is inflation. And the fact that this week we expect core CPI number to decelerate from 4.7% to 4.3%, that's a large sequential drop that I think will support kind of the Fed's you know, desire to pause and will support the market. And then the other thing I would say, you know, ISM services indicates the economy is strong. You know, the number uh, that I'm really encouraged by is the upwards earnings revisions relative to the downside. So, if you look at the world number, for example, 3% is the revision for the world. But if you look at the U.S., plus 23% has been the net positive revision for, for U.S. stocks. So I'm encouraged by that. And so I think you know, if we have spikes in yields, I want to buy the dips in the we market. Actually, in, on earnings, we have had revisions higher, that's actually, right. for the first time since the third quarter, right, of yeah. 2021. So that's encouraging. No one's it's really big, talking about yeah, that, actually. It's a big deal. But if you pull up a chart, we've gone through these you know, months and quarters of negative revisions, but we've now flipped into positive territory. Right. And if you wonder why U.S. is outperforming everybody else around the world, because for the world, net revisions are plus three, for the U.S. are plus 23, and Europe is lagging behind. But then, Jim, you look at kind of on a price-to-earnings basis, uh, we're at 19 times on a forward basis, according to Goldman, which is in the 87th percentile versus history, although a lot of that are the seven largest stocks. Um, if you exclude those, you get to more into like 17 times, which is kind of the median for the, the last 10 years. Um, so I guess the bearish case would be, is this kind of whole soft landing narrative fully reflected in the market at this point in time? And what would be the upward catalyst from here 
kind of to your end? Yeah, I think I think you've kind of answered the question with the bifurcation in the market that 17 times when you strip out the Magnificent Seven isn't really all that bad. We can live with that. But what we want to see is better earnings than are expected. And for that, you need to have the consumer hang in there. The one thing I don't think that's been mentioned is that uh, with inflation coming down, the wage gains that the consumer has had, their actual real earnings are going up. And that could be a support to consumption. Now, there is one other storm cloud on the horizon that I don't think anybody mentioned, which is this potentiality for an auto worker strike uh, starting Thursday. That's an ugly scene. Um, you know, the, the, the trickle-through effect of the supplier chain for the auto manufacturers is very large in this country. If they go on strike, it's good for absolutely nobody. Now, I think this could be a Waterloo moment. We know in the past several months we've seen a lot of contracts renewed at much higher rates, whether it's the airlines, whether it's UPS. There's been a lot of successful union negotiations. If you really look at what the auto manufacturers unions are asking for, it's pretty substantial. It's a, it's a reversion back to what actually sent the auto manufacturers into bankruptcy 25 years ago, excuse me, 15 years ago, and that is a return to pensions. Uh, they want to reduce their work week to 32 hours. This in a highly competitive auto manufacturing uh, environment globally. Now, where I'm going with this is I said it's a water, potentially a Waterloo moment. I think this is the moment where uh, public opinion against the unions could actually turn against the unions as asking too much. Definitely the Fed's paying attention to this. Wage growth factors heavily into inflation. Um, I think this is something we've got to keep our eye on all week. But they have leverage. The unions have leverage in 2023, the type of leverage that they have not had probably since the late 1990s. And I believe that that's where what will matter most to the market is the ability for corporate earnings to recover from this three-quarter malaise. And in part of that conversation, it is what is the trajectory of the relationship between the, the union and uh, in, in management themselves. That's more critical to me than anything else. You know, we could sit and talk about the economy, but most of the times the economy is not the stock market. The economy can be doing something distinctively different versus what the actual pricing of bonds and equities are going to be doing. Joe, it's back to earnings. Joe, if I may, I completely agree with you. So, you know, going into these negotiations, the expectation should be that there is a meaningful raise on the table. Meaningful. Yeah. Um, that If that doesn't happen, of course these guys are going to strike. It's the throwback to pensions, trying to reduce the work week, these sorts of things that, uh, that just don't make sense in today's environment. You know, there's an article, I think it was on Friday, I forget who put it out, about the Chinese overcapacity capacity in the automobile manufacturing market and how they're flooding Europe with internal combustion engine uh, vehicles very cheaply. I mean, this, you know, you're right, the economy is not the stock market, but in the long run, it does matter. If we crush the profitability of the auto manufacturing industry, that will eventually hurt hurt the markets. It's going to lead to price increases across the board. That's inflationary. Mm. Look what UPS did last week. They raised prices 6% after they negotiated with the Teamsters. So, that's where the leverage is for companies to manage through these kinds of issues, in, in my opinion. But what does it do for the job market itself? Because the last report, we saw a very significant impact from the yellow bankruptcy, yep. which was a direct result of union negotiations, as well as uh, the, the strikes in Hollywood. I think it's temporary, though, right? It's, it it's, is. It's like a one-off thing, right? And, and I look at the initial claims numbers in terms of all the job data points that you can look at. Initial claims is leading indicator, and the four-week moving average is uh, 230,000 far below recessionary times of 375, uh, 350 to 375. So 
today, you know, we we're looking at the advent of a, a very busy week. It looks like the market kind of optimistic going into to the prints that they're expecting this week. Um, with with a 10-year back at 4.3, um, do you think this is a, a sense that the market believes that the Fed may be done raising rates and bond yields are kind of peaking out at these levels, Joe? Well, I think the expectation is that it's the November meeting that's really in play. I think the Fed funds futures uh, market is pricing in somewhere around a 55 to 60 percent probability that the Federal Reserve would raise in November. But I don't think we're, we're going to really know for certain until we get further information uh, this week in CPI and in the coming weeks and, and in the coming month as well. Um, I, I look at where we are from the perspective of is it right for investors to consider to be going in and buying equities here. And, and I do believe that the one thing that we are doing is we're returning sentiment back to a pretty pessimistic type of demeanor, the type of demeanor that generally uh, results in down the line, whether it's over a six to eight week or a, a 12 to 16 week period, you get that snapback, that washing away of the negative pessimism mm. and equities rally. And I think we're setting up for that in the fourth quarter. I really do. I believe that we will see the chase for performance. I think it will be led by the mega caps and technology itself. I do think you can see dispersion. I believe in the dispersion theory. But just look at today. You know, we're talking about resiliency in the overall indexes. Well, why is that? It's because you've got Tesla, which is up 9%. I know NVIDIA is down slightly, but you also have a little bit of a snapback in some of the other mega caps as well. So I, I believe that's the type of an environment and the leadership is still there. And I think that sets us up nicely for the fourth quarter. I do agree, agree with that, Joe, that I think the setup is better than we had, for example, going into August. You know, first of all, you look at some of the technical indicators and you look at some of the systematic traders. There were long, long, long equities going into August. Guess what? They wound that out pretty quickly. And so they're not as long. They're not as short as they were you know, earlier in the year. But that's a significant correction in positioning. And when I look at hedge funds, for example, yeah, they're sort of long in a one year look back. But when you look at a five year look back, that long short ratio is actually in just 32nd percentile. So I I think there's a lot of money on the sidelines in addition to, you know, the five or six trillion in cash on the sidelines that can still be uh, looking to buy the dips in this market. And then to your point about yields, you know, I do think that yields may still have room to move higher, but that's not necessarily for bad reasons. You know, first of all, you know, yes, it's the Fed holding steady, most likely around the current levels. Maybe inflation expectations not going down quite as much. But the third component that's actually really supportive for the market is growth. You know, what we've done this year is we've priced out the recession, we've priced in the soft landing scenario, and growth expectations have outperformed. So is it possible that the rise in the 10-year is not a bad one for stocks? Jim, how important is this week's test with all the IPOs and deal-making that we're seeing? I mean, we've really seen a pretty dormant IPO market for the last 18 months or so, and this week we saw terms from Instacart. Uh, Arm is expected to start trading, I believe, on Thursday, both with kind of muted deals relative to prior expectations, but if those do well, how might that serve as kind of a catalyst for at least risk appetite? It, it definitely can help, but I think we have to remember where we are seasonally. And we've talked about this, many of us on the desk, for quite some time. September is living up to its billing. You know, and there's always a fundamental 
reason why. This, in this case, it's because of fears about the consumer. We talked about that earlier. Maybe this Apple news with China. There's always a reason, but September is living up to its billing. Here's the point I'm trying to make. The people who are bringing these deals, what they want more than anything to bring a deal is lower volatility. As you get to the end of September and get into October, you're probably going to have that performance chasing rally. We've talked about the strength of the economy overall, the potential for profits uh, having bottomed. And what that means is as the volatility comes down, the deal making calendar can open up a little bit. And yes, this does set the table, Arm and Instacart. But I don't think that next week you're going to see it. I think you've got to wait until October and going into the fourth quarter for deal making and the risk appetite of which you speak, Leslie, to pick up. Yeah, the actual price discovery process will be interesting to watch. Um, let's get to our chart of the day. Qualcomm shares seeing pretty decent pop after a new agreement with Apple. Christina Partzinevelis joins us now with that story. Hey, Christina. Uh, it's considered a win for Qualcomm, not only because it's going to continue to provide Apple's 5G modem chips through 2026, but it will maintain its current patent licensing agreement also with Apple, which means royalty revenue. And overall, that means two separate streams of revenue. The relationship, though, between both firms hasn't always been peachy. Back in 2017, they sued each other over royalties. In 2019, Apple bought Intel's modem business in an attempt to design its own in-house iPhone chips. And then you fast forward to today and we see that Apple still really hasn't figured it out yet, which is why it's turning to Qualcomm for the next three years to get those chips. Apple even used Intel's chips for several iPhone models like the Series 11, but there were complaints that ran slower. There's some issues. So Apple moved back to Qualcomm back in 2020. We don't know right now the favorable pricing that Qualcomm is giving Apple or what this means for margins, but this partnership could maybe offset any potential weakness from competitor Huawei and its new 5G phones. Should the quality in the Huawei phone prove sufficient? We're still trying to figure that out just now. But what timing, though, for Qualcomm? A day before Apple's big iPhone event tomorrow, which could mean great publicity for Qualcomm, especially since, you know, these talking about the iPhones. Now we get to talk about these iPhones, iPhone 15, that'll have the Qualcomm chip. And now you can see shares, though, of Qualcomm up almost 4%, but still off the earlier highs when we saw it about 8% in pre-market trading. Uh, thank you, Christina. Uh, Jim, want to get to you because you own Qualcomm here. Uh, is this a surprise? It is a great surprise. News, great news I, for them. I know there's some analysts today who, who said, no, we saw this coming. Okay, that's fine. Uh, it surprised me. It's a good piece of news. That's why the stock is up. The stock's been very disappointing. Anybody who's in the stock knows that, um, at least in part because of, this is a very toxic relationship between Apple and Qualcomm. It has been for many years. Christina referenced the 2017 lawsuit. That was a very bad moment. Your biggest customer sues you. Um, however, maybe just possibly there is some smoothing of the edges in that relationship. Maybe just possibly. Three years is a long time for the extension of the contract, and they had extended it a couple of years before that. So maybe Apple and Qualcomm are learning to live with one another. I'm not quite sure of that, and I don't think the market is either, which is why the initial gains have backed off. This is, at heart, though, a very cheap company that is uh, very much focused on intellectual property, intellectual property that is vital for mobile telephony. Now, the mobile telephony market, as we all know, has been terrible for a year and a half. We've been waiting for it to bottom. There's still no signs that you you can really point to and say that it has bottomed, but at some point it will bottom. In the meantime, you're also looking at the automated, excuse me, automotive impact of Qualcomm, where they've been building out a very big business and Internet of Things. You really want to, the, to take some of the mantle uh, or the burden, rather, from telephony uh, off of Qualcomm's revenue streams. All in all, Leslie, very good piece of news, but you can see that the market isn't holding on to those gains fully because it's not sure what this relationship with Apple is going to be. I mean, be. it's cheap at nine times, and you're looking at 
earnings power of something like $12 a share, right? So, I mean, if they can get the auto piece, which they have a $30 billion backlog, uh, backlog on. So you, you get good visibility for the next three years because of Apple, and then you actually switch over to auto being the driver of the company's revenue. So it's kind of interesting to me, for yeah, sure. I, I think it, it buys Qualcomm time yeah. to a certain extent. Sure. Because, Jim, correct me if I'm wrong, I think they've indicated by 2026 that the revenue generation directly from Apple declines to somewhere around 20% from where it is uh, right now. So this, this kind of allows a little bit of time for Qualcomm. And I don't know, I just wonder, thinking about what Apple's been stating that they wanted, their intention was to utilize their own chips. Maybe it just shows how difficult, in yeah. fact, it is to utilize your own chips. And maybe this agreement is more about Apple really needs Qualcomm at this point. As I said, three years is a long time. I mean, the prior contract, I think they extended it for one year. Um, so this is this may be Apple doing exactly, Joe, what you're just saying, which is recognizing, like, why reinvent the wheel? They've got this done. Now, you know, there's other factors that Qualcomm has to face as, as a shareholder here. Uh, China is a very important part of their business, and we know what's going on with China. It's, it's not the time that you really want to have a big China exposure. So, look, I, I think, and Stephanie, to your point, yes, it's cheap, cheap for all of these reasons. Maybe it's gotten cheap enough that all the bad news is priced in there. I happen to think so, but I've learned to sort of watch my back with this stock. And clearly an upside surprise today. Uh, speaking of China and exposure and Apple, uh, we are sticking with that company here because their product event is set to kick off tomorrow. And analysts are expecting the latest iPhone models to come with possible price increases. Shares have been under pressure recently due to those ongoing China concerns. And Steph, you own Apple. You're concerned about price increases just broadly in the economy. Are you expecting uh, that to come to fruition tomorrow? I own, I'm only 1% weighted. It's 7% in my benchmark, so I'm very underweight Apple. Um, I would look for an opportunity to buy it if it were to pull back, but it's, it's trading at 29 times, Leslie, right? And you got negative 1% in terms of uh, earnings decline last quarter, 5% decline in, in revenues, 2% decline in iPhone sales, 20% decline in iPad sales, and 7% declines in Mac. So it's not... But it's like, what are you paying for? What are you getting? Yeah, you're right. getting the free cash flow, the gross margin expansion, OPEX under control. I got that. But 29 times seems pretty rich to me. If I'm playing Apple in a bigger way, it's with Broadcom. And it's because some of the suppliers, I think, offer a lot more growth and more diversification. Joe, you've... You know, you've got this sales slump clearly that has uh, maybe not been priced into the stock at this point in time, but Apple is counting on a slew of upgrades to really bring more customers uh, and help kind of dig them out of that slump. How bullish are you that they'll be able to do that? Valuation is not my specialty, but it's certainly puzzling when you look at the valuation of Apple and realize you've had three, cons uh, three consecutive quarterly declines for their revenue growth, that is somewhat troubling. Steph mentioned before pricing power from companies, and here's a great example of a company that we all suspect has the pricing power and will retain the pricing power. We're going to learn about that if, in fact, they raise the price of the iPhone, which many are ultimately expecting. But, you know, similar to Stephanie, I run an equal weighted strategy. So an equal weighted S&P is 4.5% higher, while the S&P is 16.7% higher. I'll raise my hand if I've been wrong year to date on that, because I have the right exposure to date so far mm. has not been to be equal weighted. It's been to be, to be market cap weighted. But I remain in equal weight positioning towards the mega caps and certainly Apple. Yeah, uh, there's a great 
great line in that new BlackBerry movie about you know them saying no one's going to buy a phone at those at those prices. Of course, this was back in 2007, and we've seen <laughs> what's happened since then. Uh, up next, our call of the day: a big upgrade for this stock that one analyst sees rallying 60 percent from here. It's helping drive the Nasdaq higher today as well. We'll debate it next. Halftime is back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Back to halftime, let's get to our call of the day. Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas upgrading Tesla to outperform and raising his price target to $400. That's about 60% upside. From here, Jonas saying Tesla's supercomputer project, Dojo, could have a $500 billion enterprise value. Um, so $400, Joe, that's just where Tesla hit their highs a couple years ago. But, you know, we've, we've heard kind of the the up-and-coming aspects, the, the new market aspects of this Dojo computer for quite some time. Do you think that something's changed now that would indicate that there's a, an additional $500 billion baked into this opportunity? Well, Adam is the one that's, that's suggesting the potential here. And some other words that he uses within the note as he talks about this potentially being a $10 trillion marketplace and that Tesla maintains an asymmetric advantage in that marketplace. Now, you hear those words, that's pretty compelling in terms of believing that Tesla can continue uh, its upward trajectory that it's had so far year to date and eventually hit that $400 uh, price target that he has. Um, I, again, my ownership of, of Tesla is, is equal weighted in its nature. This is a stock that for you as a, a viewer, you have to understand it's exhibited a lot of volatility over the last 12 months. And I think you have to size the position accordingly to accept that volatility. Um, you're always assuming risk in the marketplace. It's how do you manage the risk? How do you shape the risk? And I think a lot of the problem that investors have in their ownership of Tesla is they get somewhat tempted and intoxicated by the extreme price movement, in particular to the upside, and they, they extend too much leverage towards the position. And that leads you to be somewhat susceptible to the extreme volatility that this stock has. So the, the fundamental um, aspect of what Adam Jonas is talking about here in the long term, it's something that we've heard in terms of autonomous driving and self-driving taxis. We've heard about that. I mean, we heard years ago that they were going to offer something that was going to be competitive to Uber and Lyft. We don't see that in the reality of today. So the strong fundamental argument is there. I just think it falls back to more about how do you want to position to that fundamental argument, understanding that you can't, the fundament, the strength of the fundamentals can't diminish the volatility that this stock seems to always constantly exhibit. That volatility is going to be there. And to me, that's the most important aspect if you're going to own this stock. It's a total addressable market story, right? I mean, yes. if, if they can get to $10 trillion, that really is very compelling. That being said, the stock up, was up 110% 
before today. It's now up 120, trades at 80 times forward. And so I think the question is, is it an auto company or a tech company? He's now pivoted towards this being more of a, a tech company, We've clearly. heard that in the past, though, right? Right. No, absolutely. But this is a company that gross margins are going down, right? I mean, that, that's kind of troubling. Talk about lack of pricing power, right? They've been lowering prices. So to me, if you're going to pay up for this, you have to really buy in to the the autonomous angle and the technology aspect of this company. I, I don't think this can be a tech company without the auto company. I mean, the first line from Mr. Jonas's report is investors have long debated whether Tesla is an auto company or a tech company. Now, today it's being valued as a tech company. Last week it was being valued as an auto company because <laughs> what you're talking about with gross margins. Here's the thing. I don't think you can get that total addressable market. I could be wrong on this without the auto business doing well so that you've got a customer base upon which to use that AI and get the data that you you want. Now, here's where this becomes a problem. Competition has been creeping up, right? And, you know, we, last week we heard that the German auto manufacturers at whatever that auto show was, I think it was in Europe, but I forget, you know, that they're really coming on strong. We've got a lot of U.S. manufacturers. This isn't the EV market that it was 10 years ago. So that competition that could eat into their automotive business can also eat into the technology business. Mm, but maybe diversifying the revenue, uh, it has the, the prospect of you know, increasing their total addressable market, and therefore the stock is up 9% today. Uh, let's get the headlines with Silvana Hanau. Hey, Silvana. Hey, Leslie. All right, well, financial services firm Cantor Fitzgerald is donating all of its global revenues from trading today to honor those who died in the 9-11 attacks. The company lost 658 employees during the attacks, then launched this donation day shortly after. 22 years later, Cantor Fitzgerald is hoping to raise between 8 and $12 million. The firm is inviting celebrities and guests to help licensed brokers complete transactions and raise funds for charities. This year's celebrity appearances include former President Bill Clinton, Charlize Theron, and Matthew McConaughey. The Spanish Football Federation chief quit his job three weeks after he kissed a player on the women's nationals team without her consent. He said his position had become untenable after widespread outrage. The decision came after the player lodged a criminal complaint for sexual assault and coercion. Andrew Barrymore is planning to bring back her talk show amid the Hollywood writers and actor strikes. A spokesperson said the fourth season will premiere next week, but will be produced without literary material to keep in line with the strike. Halftime Report returns after this. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. We're back on halftime. Let's get out to Bob Pisani in Huntington Beach, California, as the Future Proof Conference for today's ETF Edge. Hey, Bob. Hello, Leslie. Uh, over 2,500 investors and financial advisors have gathered to hear advice from a galaxy of investing stars 
and do a little socializing on the beach, maybe a lot of socializing. Let's find out what this is all about from the sponsor, Ritholz Wealth Management CEO Josh Bound, also joining us, Jan Von Eck, he's CEO of Von Eck, one of the many ETF presenters here. Josh, uh, we are on the beach. We are literally on the beach. By the way, guys, you didn't need to get dressed up for me. That's, that's okay. <laughs> I shouldn't have. Don't worry about it. <laughs> We're on the beach. You've yeah. been looking to redefine financial conferences for a couple of years. You did this last year here. Yeah. We've got a lot of panels here. We've got big stars, big financial stars. Jeremy Siegel's here. Von Eck is here. We've got Jeff Gunlock here. But we also have Method Man from Wu-Tang Clan. You, you brought right. in Wu-Tang Clan <laughs> players. Sure we sure did. To get at this new generation. What's, what are you trying to get at with this conference? Okay, so it's about 3,000 people here, and we have, I think, three-quarters of a mile of beachfront boardwalk, thanks to the city of Huntington Beach, California. We've got advisors from all over the country, fintech executives, asset management executives, portfolio managers, wealth managers, and the idea is that everyone coming here wants to be part of the future. They want to be part of this next generation that's driving where things are going. They want in on the decision making. They want equity. They want buy-in. And they want to meet each other, most importantly. Right. And that's what we're facilitating. I do a lot of conference organizing, and we tend to knock ourselves out on the informational part, on the content part. But what you seem to be pointing out here is the social interaction is as, as, is as important as the content. Yeah, listen, we ha our, our program is, our, I think our program is top notch in terms of the content that's on stage. Um, when you're talking about people of the caliber of Jeff Gunlock and Cliff Asness and uh, all of the big podcasts that have come out, we're not ignoring that part, but you're exactly right. There's got to be more to it. In today's day and age, you can get all of that content on the internet almost on demand. Anytime you want, you can earn CE credits yeah. online. So what we figured out during the pandemic as we were planning this is what will people get out of bed for and get on a flight? And the number one thing is to meet each other. People from all over the country want to see what their peers are doing, how they're serving clients, how they're investing, implementing technology. And so the social aspect really is front and center, regardless of how hard we work to put great content on stage. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a giant networking conference is essentially what's going but on I here. I think they also want to learn how did they communicate with their clients, yeah. and that's what Josh and you are really good at, and I think they want to learn from you all in that respect. Jan, this is a big week for you. You run the largest semiconductor ETF out there. This is the Van Eck Semiconductor ETF, folks. That's SMH, and the important thing is we're going to have a lot going on this week. It's a market cap weighted index, the 25 biggest semiconductor companies. Arm's set to go public this week. Uh, many of us own tech through these ETFs. So I'll explain how this process works. At what point do you start buying ARM and what criteria does your ETF need to make sure ARM gets included? What's the criteria? Well, here? ETFs want liquidity, right? So that is the most important criteria. Is this a big company and is it going to be liquid? Now, it's going to be big. It'll be 50 billion actually in semiconductor land, right? That's not even that big. So it doesn't make it to the front of the line to make it to the, one of the top 10. It has to be 90 billion. So it doesn't meet that criteria. But the thing I'm a little concerned about is more than 10% of the company has to be in the public markets free float for us to consider it liquid. 
And right now, it looks like it's a touch under that. Nine and a half, something like that. So that means well, it would never a, be in our This is ETF. a problem. I mean, other ETFs probably have a similar criteria. You're the natural buyers of this, right? Right. I think the investment bankers haven't focused on this yet. I wonder if they, has somebody told them this? Well, I mean, you are now. Well, SoftBank needs to know that. You'd think like there's other ETFs out there, XLK, the S&P Technology right. Index ETF that's out there. There's SOX. There's others. But it's, it's not U.S. domiciled. It's a British business, and that's also going to be part of the criteria that's, that screens it out from, let's say, the S&P 500 technology ETF. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of things working against it, in my view, yeah. which is why I'm not particularly excited about buying it when it comes out. It, and and it, some of those things are good, right? right? I mean, you don't want to necessarily buy hot IPO right off the issuance. You want to make sure the stock is settled in, right? Yeah, I okay. think so. So maybe when it does get included, you'll like it. Uh, yeah, I'll let you know then. Yeah, we'll see what the price is. We'll see how it does. In six months. All right, we're going to have much more coming up on ETF Edge from the Future Proof Conference. That's at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Now, Jan's going to give us more color on how the ARM IPO will affect the semiconductor and technology ETFs. He'll be joined by Grayscale CEO Michael Sonnenschein. He's going to update us on his application for a Bitcoin ETF. He's here. Alex Morris is here as well. He's the CIO at FM Investments. He's going to update us on the wild year of Treasury bond investing with his single bond ETFs lineup. Big hit last year, big hit this year. ETFedge.cnbc.com. Leslie, this whole arm thing is really getting very interesting. Back to you. It, it is. Uh, very interesting indeed. Definitely a tell for the IPO market and the semiconductor industry as a whole. Bob, thank you very much. Uh, we'll okay. be tuning in to that online show. We'll have much more from Future Proof as well coming your way tomorrow. Scott Wapner will be hosting a special halftime report live from Huntington Beach. Be sure to join us tomorrow at noon Eastern. Up next, it's game day. Disney and Charter Communications reaching a deal to end their cable blackout. Both stocks higher on the news. We'll break down the details next. Welcome back to Halftime. Big news breaking within the last hour in the media world. Disney and Charter reaching a deal to end their cable blackout fight. Shares of Disney and Charter are both moving higher on the news. Uh, Jim, you own Disney, but Charter's up 3.7%. So does that mean that Charter got the better end of the deal here? Well, we don't we don't know the details. Um, and I hope when the details come out that it isn't just, hey, we negotiated on price, but we actually negotiated on where this industry is going, right? To say something everybody knows, linear TV is going away, all right? This is the same, same sort of industry that newspapers were 20, 30, 40 years ago. They were great businesses back then. The internet came along and gutted them. Now, by no means do I think that either the distribution or content of media is going the way of newspapers. But it is transforming. I think Iger, I think Charter, I think everybody knows it's being transformed. I'll color this with two anecdotes. I was out in L.A. with one of my colleagues, Scott Swanson, great equity analyst. He told me he was a Charter uh, subscriber, got kicked off of, of uh, you know, got Disney kicked off. He said, to heck with it, I'm going to Hulu. And yesterday, my son called me up and said, Dad, why are we on DirecTV? Just go to YouTube. All right. Now, granted, these are anecdotes, but these are anecdotes that are being multiplied all over the country, all over the world. Linear TV is going away. I think Charter knows it. Disney certainly knows it. Hopefully this deal fast forwards to an end game where it's all streaming and then we can work on the profitability, which ties into the strikes that we were talking about earlier. This whole industry is being reimagined. When it's done, it's going to be different than it was four years ago where ESPN was this incredible cash flow. But I do not think it's going to be what the newspapers are today, which is frankly a shadow in terms of profitability of what they were 40 years ago. Anastasia, what do, you, what do you make of the broader implications of just kind of bundling together certain assets for the overarching media industry in the future that Jim laid out? 
Yeah, I mean, I feel like we've seen this coming a long time ago, which is, you know, content is king, but there's so many people generating content which costs a lot of money, and there's so much competition. So it's really hard to compete in that environment. So I'm not surprised to see that, you know, some of these uh, providers of, um, you know, distribution have been struggling in this environment. But, you know, to the point about linear TV going away, my daughter, who's seven years old, was watching, uh, I don't know, Nickelodeon this, you know, this weekend. It's like, what are these commercials? Yes. Why do I stick around for those? There's no patience for that, so yeah. going away. I have the same thing. No commercials in Paw Patrol. Not, <laughs> not an option. We're watching the same Leslie. It's been a 2 to 3% hit to total revenues to Disney, or 6 to 10% hit to EBITDA to Disney, which really would have been, it would have hurt them, actually, in their bid for NBA and the content for that that they have to bid for, as well as the dividend um, that they said that they were going to reinstate. So I kind of think that Disney had their backs against the wall. I don't know what the terms are. None of us know what the terms are, but I think it was that Disney had no choice. I'm sorry I'm jumping in here, but I'm now I'm getting more passionate about this. Disney's been it. a royal pain in the rear, and yeah. everybody knows it. This Hulu deal, right, it's going to get done, probably going to get done sometime before year end. The worries now are, is Disney going to pay $8 billion or are they going to pay $11 billion? Who cares? Who honestly cares? This is where the future is going to. That extra two or three billion that they may have to pay to Comcast isn't going to matter when you look forward two to three years ago. This is where the industry is going. Iger's no dummy, all right? And he's been taking it on the chin the last six, nine months since he's gotten back in the driver's seat. He's no dummy. He knows where the industry is going. All right. It has not been the happiest place on earth for Jim Leventhal. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put it that way, but I think things can turn around. Uh, up next, Mike Santoli joins us with his midday word. Halftime will be right back. Welcome back to Halftime. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us now with his midday word. Mike, we're setting up for a pretty big week here. Dow's regained a little bit of steam throughout the course of the show. Uh, what are you most focused on this week? Yeah, Leslie, it's pretty noncommittal ahead of what we know are, are likely catalysts at the particularly the CPI report. Uh, the S&P is actually sitting almost directly on its 50-day average. It's more or less flattish for the month to date and pulled forward some of that weakness that you might see in September into August. The big question is, are all the other asset classes going to stay you know, relatively well behaved within their ranges like the dollar, like uh, oil prices, like Treasury yields, or are we going to have to absorb some kind of a breakout? So my take has been for a while that the absolute level of yields uh, isn't necessarily automatically a negative up here, 4.3 on the 10-year, but you have to sort of make your peace with it, make sure it's for the right reasons. It's 2% real yields. Uh, and that's something that I think could act as a restraint uh, as we go ahead. But again, we've, you know, the, the CPI numbers have actually been coming in relatively close to forecast. So I doubt that the market's really braced for a surprise. We'll see if we get one. One of the concerns has been just the overall concentration into the, the biggest seven companies yeah. out there. Um, do you expect any of this data this week to help broaden that out and create more of a, a tide lifting all boats mentality in the market? Or, or how do we really get there um, and get kind of more breadth in the overall uh, equity markets. I don't know that the one inflation report would do it. Um, I mean, I think it's been a little more nuanced than just the seven stocks have been carrying the market. You look at things that have outperforming most of this year. It is consumer cyclicals. It's industrials. I think you have to get some confidence uh, that the durability of this economic expansion is something we can uh, trust at this point. I think that's been uh, a little bit uh, of a question mark for a while right now. Uh, you know, you have seen, by the way, regional banks on a quarter-to-date basis outperforming semis. So in weird little pockets, there has been some mean reversion. Uh, but uh, I agree with you. I mean, growth is more or less 
uh, kind of carried things to this level. I think without the top seven stocks, the uh, rest of the stocks in the S&P would be up 5% year to date. That's nothing compared to what we're up, but it's also not a, an outright negative. Yeah, it's still up. Yeah. Up is up. <laughs> Mike, thank you. Yeah. Uh, coming up, the committee is getting ready to grade your trades. To reach us, email askhalftime at cnbc.com. We're back after this. Time now for Grade My Trade. For Steph, John sold Keurig Dr. Pepper at 33.82, reinvested it back into Pepsi and Coca-Cola. Please grade this trade. Uh, I like KDP. The only reason I sold it is to buy Amazon. I needed the funds. But I like the, the long-term story better than Coke and Pepsi. And it's actually trading at 19 times forward. And the other two are trading something like 22, 23 times. Um, I understand that they have great businesses. So it's not like I don't like them. I just think they're expensive. And I like the mid-single-digit volume growth at the uh, KDP. And I like the M&A that they've been doing. All right. For Joe, Lewis says he purchased hefty amounts of Adobe and Caterpillar in July. He plans to hold them for at least seven years. What are your thoughts? I'm not sure why we target seven years, but that sounds good. <laughs> hefty amounts is also good. Caterpillar, the revenue is actually beginning to increase. That's a positive. Combine that with strong positive momentum. That bodes well for his position. Adobe will be reporting earnings towards the end of the week. Web traffic has been strong. Firefly should be a positive contributor. But understand, these are uh, strong expectations that are embedded already in the price of the stock. All right. Uh, and for Jim, Jamal owns Vertex Pharmaceuticals at an average price of 287. He has had a nice run since 2022, where the stock has had a nice run since 2022. Uh, do you think he should sell it now? Keep well, it? I, I wouldn't Buy sell more? the whole. I wouldn't sell the whole thing, but I think you can trim it here because it has had a nice run. Um, look, it's a very high quality stock. Uh, Biopharmaceuticals here. It's got a cystic fibrosis uh, franchise that's very powerful. It has withstood all sorts of challenges. They're trying to get into other franchises as well, pain, diabetes. So for the long run, I think it will do well. However, a trim here is not a bad idea. Idea, given the fact that you know it's trading around 23 times with roughly 11% earnings growth rate going forward. But let me be clear, I'm positive on the stock. You've had a good run. Take just a little money off the table. All right. And for Anastasia, John in Illinois asks, does gold look like a buy and could it be a hedge against a recession? Well, it can, but I think there's a right time to own gold, and it's either when inflation is accelerating, the Fed is not doing anything about it, or there's an imminent recession. But when I think about the market conditions, I don't see any of those in place right now. And I don't see an imminent recession because the Fed maybe is just slightly restrictive or not at all, and real yields are just getting back to 1% territory, and they might actually go higher from here. So that typically is not an optimal condition for gold. So gold has been in this big trading range of 1600 to 2000. So for now, I don't see the reason for it to break out to the upside. But let's revisit in a few months. All right. Gold trading with uncertainty akin to many other pockets of the market. Uh, stay with us. Final trades from the committee up next on Halftime. Welcome back. It's a somber day here in downtown Manhattan and across America as we mark 22 years since the 9-11 attacks. Joe, before we go, you have some final thoughts on the day. Yeah, the words never forget are synonymous, uh, synonymous with the tragic events of 9-11. Of and when we use those words, let's never forget those that lost their lives, their families, the selfless determination of first responders, uh, this, the, the spirit in our purpose as a nation to comfort and recover. And then lastly, the blessing to move us forward, which was the unconditional unity we had at that time. 
That's very well said. Uh, a day of reflection indeed. Um, Want to get to final trades from the other members of the committee today. Uh, Jim, let's start with you. Names only, Oracle. Oracle. Uh, after the bell, reporting. Anastasia. Software. I'd be adding to it on the dips. All right. And Steph? J.M. Smucker. I like the deal. Excellent. Well, that does it for halftime. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. Picture this. You're on a John Deere compact tractor, enjoying the sun as you clear brush across your pasture. You just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you.